Talo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. It has spread and we've given up on trying to identify the source. Niwe officially confirms his COVID-19 community transmission for the first time Also, The manner in which people are being killed is just horrific. The latest murderous attacks in Papua New Guinea leaves more communities traumatized. What are the police doing? And later on... Our home ownership back in 2017 was the lowest ever, around 16%, and that's just not good. New Zealand's Pacific Ministry launches its housing strategy to increase Pacifica home ownership, but will it make a difference? The new government has confirmed the country is experiencing COVID-19 community transmission for the first time since the virus was recorded at the border in March this year. Out of the seven cases recorded in the reporting period to November 28 local time, four have been labelled COVID-19 community transmission. Acting Secretary of Government Gaylene Tasmania told Lydia Lewis the latest. The latest results, because we don't release our results until the end of the day, as things continue to be received, um, we will, we're still sitting on the 25 and we will update that at the end of the day. And I noticed the words community transmission in this, these results really? online. Yes. Um, is this the first time there have been community transmission cases? We put out a press release yesterday um, where government has basically confirmed that we have a level of community transmission. Yes. So although we still have cases coming through the border, we have also stopped looking for sources of infection within the community. So we have to put these down as cases that have been contracted through community transmission. Um, yes. Is this the first time this year that this has happened? What we were able to do in the past was be able to link it back to a source that came through the border. So we know that all of these cases are coming through the border, except when some have slipped out into the community and we weren't able to detect and isolate people earlier, it has spread and we are, we've given up on trying to identify the source. We are, we're confident that they are all linked to the border. Absolutely. What is the difference between community cases and community transmission? So we are going to change that. That's on the website. That's currently got community cases. We'll be revamping those stats this afternoon. Okay. So it will change from community cases to community transmission. No, we're, we're just going to take that out. We're just going to have active cases. Okay, and what is the difference though between community cases and community transmission, just from a medical standpoint? Community transmission, we put that down to be where we have no source of infection, like people are picking it up and we're not able to link it back to any of the positive cases that we have or any of the close contacts. We were unable to find a relationship between a positive case and any known close contacts or other positive cases. You can just assume that there's people out there who are positive that we have not yet identified. And so people are picking it up just by being around the community. I understand that there's support from New Zealand that's come in, that I understand is planned support. Do you need more support or how are resources at the at, moment? At this time, we have not 
um, called on additional support at this point in time. But we certainly have that um, as a, you know, a source of support. Should we um, require it, then we would reach out to get additional um, health personnel to assist us. But at this point in time, that hasn't been triggered. When were the first community transmission cases recorded? The, the press release yesterday was the first time that we, we, we were able to link all the previous cases. So that's why we've seen those, they were cases that were identified out in the community, but we linked them back to the border. But in this uh, occasion, so yesterday, government has put out a press release saying that we're unable to link it back. We, we can't, and we stopped trying to link it back because we have to look at um, containing the spread of the cases that we currently have. We just don't have additional resources to be trying to find the sources of infection. Hence, government has notified this to be community transmission. We, we have never done that before. This is the first time that we're saying there's been community transmission in Niue. Just to be clear, this is the first time that there is community transmission in Niue. Correct. Okay. And what is your message to the community? At this point in time, again, it's just remembering to follow the preventative measures that we have been promoting throughout the past few years in response to COVID. So again, it's masking up if you're indoor and um, social distancing if you have any of the symptoms that we've been putting up, again, reminding people on social media and, and our notices, especially the New York Hospital page, it's to get tested um, immediately and then isolate if you're positive. But what we're trying to do is prevent further spread. Um, and so the message is still the same. It hasn't changed. If you just follow those preventative measures and get tested, the earlier you're able to isolate, the easier it will be for us to contain the spread of COVID in the community. Ten people were beheaded in a remote area in Papua New Guinea's Madang province last week. Police say seven were murdered at about 5 a.m. on Friday in one pipe village in the Transgogo region. The deceased included a seven-year-old boy. Another three were killed a few hours later in Alfan village in the same area. A correspondent in PNG, Scott Whitey, told Don Wiseman about the struggle police have had trying to end the murderous attacks. This is being done by uh, a one group of people and they were arrested last year and they were brought in, about 20 of them, brought in, to, brought in by police and they were held in custody and this was done after a series of negotiations with the local communities. Now, when they were brought in, it was difficult for police to actually charge them because they, the witnesses didn't want to testify against them because they were just too afraid to do that. Now, those people have been released back into the communities and those are the people who have gone ahead and are causing all these problems in the communities. And these are very young people about, uh, I think, according to the provincial police commander, the youngest is about 14 and the oldest about 30. So it, it's within that age group of people, about 15 of them. Why are they doing this? It appears to be an organized group. And whether it's uh, rooted in a cult or some kind of an organization is still uncertain. People call it a cult because the manner in which people are being killed is just horrific. And that's what police have had to deal with over the last 10 years. Because this is not the first one. There's, there's been several already since 2018, the one that I can remember. 
this area is called the Transgogal area. How remote yes. is that within Medang? It's accessible by road. Well, the large part, a large part of it is, is is accessible by road, but there are villages which you have to walk to, and it's along the same range as the Raikos district, the Ramu Valley. So it's it's that mountain range that connects these places, but it's it's a fairly difficult place to get to uh, if you were to travel on foot. But in a country where there are some very remote areas, it's not the remotest, is it? So no, no, it's it, it, it's not. Uh, there there are pockets where it's really difficult to get to, but yeah. It, it, Parts of it are accessible by road. The people living in this community must be just traumatised. Yes, just by talking to the provincial police commander and the and the manner in which he was talking to me, he said it's it's really difficult for police to actually charge people. Uh, firstly, charge them, bring them in in large numbers, and then get them convicted through witness testimonies. He said that part of the community participation that police need in order to get people convicted isn't there. It, it's just not working as it should. Uh, and it's primarily because people are scared of retribution. So are police able to offer greater protection to these people? Uh, it, it's it's a difficult question given the resources that police have access to and their ability to, you know, maintain protection for long periods. It's just something that's not really practical in Papua New Guinea. Now, you and I have talked about a lot of people dying over a fairly short period of time, people who have yes. been murdered, essentially. It seems that there's a disrespect for the sanctity of life that's growing in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, there's a collection of issues that have have brought this about, and it's it's not an issue that has happened in the last 20 years. You know, it, it goes back a, a long way. And one of the main reasons, one of the primary reasons, is the breakdown in the traditional governance systems that existed in Papua New Guinea. You know, the systems where people are penalized for taking a life or people are isolated from their communities as, as a penalty or uh, asking them to pay hefty compensations. That system of governance in, in traditional societies has broken down. The other issue that's added to all of this is the huge number of students coming out of grade 8 and grade 10 with no opportunities available to them. They're going back into the villages. They've got an education that's only partial, not the full 12 years of education. They're going back, getting involved in drinking alcohol, taking drugs, forming peer groups, and, and it becoming this vicious cycle of violence in the communities. But is there a solution? I mean, is, is there anyone in Papua New Guinea talking about how to solve this yep. sort of thing? You know, it's a Melanesian society, so people will listen if leaders take control of it. And actually, it's a long, long process. I mean, people have to sit down and actually be willing to reach out and bring the parties together. That's in many, many communities that are facing this problem, that's missing. So in Ley in particular, I mean, Ley is a city, but we've we've also had ethnic clashes, clashes between ethnic groups. Now, the reason why Ley City has been able to contain those problems that we've we've had, and it was far worse in 2012. Uh, reason why people here have been able to contain it is that the leaders have been willing to sit down with the leaders of the communities, bring them together and just go through this process of talking about the problems. It takes 6-12 months to just get people to understand various views, different opinions, different states of mind, and then eventually find a solution to it. But it's a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy process that they have to go through. 
14 Pacific Island countries are working together on a unique application to access a US$70 million US dollar grant from the Green Climate Fund for Fisheries Adaptation. There are two parts to the proposal. The first part acknowledges the burden of growing Pacific populations on coastal fisheries and increasing access to tuna to fill the gap in fish supply. And secondly, develop an advanced warning system to enable Pacific countries to better track the redistribution of tuna as a result of climate change impacts. Pacific Community Fisheries Climate Advisor Ludwig Kumoru and Senior Director for Tuna Fisheries at Conservation International Johan Bell are speaking to delegates at this year's meeting of the Pacific Tuna Commission in Vietnam about the proposal and the importance of thinking outside the box. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with the pair, beginning with a question to Mr Kumoru about the reasoning behind the application. There are a couple of uh, things. One, from the implementers' view, the technical implementers, one is to improve the models in science, to give us a, a bit more uh, predictability on what's happening or what, when can we say certain things are going to happen because of climate change. So that needs to be done so that we can prepare the members to make informed decisions, a timely informed decisions. Yeah, that's one. And the other thing, I suppose, is, you know, climate change is something changes to climate change, something that's not going to go away. And we can't really do much about it, but we can certainly manage the impacts. So within fisheries, you know, we have focused a long time on just fisheries, impact of actual fishing on fish stocks. But these days we know that climate is also playing a, a role in what happens to the fish stocks. So we've got to bring that discussion within fisheries management discussions. The speaking to maybe some of the concepts that the funding would go towards in terms of the things that Ludwig has just spoken about? Yes, there are two main categories that are actually called components within the proposal that we're putting to the Green Climate Fund. And we'll deal with the one that Ludwig has just spoken about first. That's actually what we're calling component B. But that's to develop an advanced warning system, which will really uh, be based on continued improvement of the modelling of the response of tuna to the warming ocean. Um, The Pacific community for almost 15 years now has been beginning to model um, those responses, but the modelling that's been done is still regarded as preliminary and there's a lot of uncertainty associated with it still, but the whole idea of this investment is to reduce the uncertainty in the modellings so that um, SPC can say to its members uh, with much more confidence, this is likely to be the timing and extent of tuna redistribution in the future. And that's um, absolutely critical to assisting the countries to adapt. And um, because they collectively manage the tuna resource so well, uh, and they have mechanisms in place already through the Vessel Day Scheme, through the parties to the Nauru Agreement, uh, where they manage the, the effects of the tuna moving around within their combined exclusive economic zones. But the big question mark for everyone is what is likely to happen if the fish begin to move out of that area where they're so well managed into high seas areas where it's much more difficult to manage the fish? That is a major concern. And so the adaptations that Ludwig's been referring to are really going to be predicated on having... A, a really good idea about what that movement's going to look like because only then can you go in 
and begin to negotiate internationally and say, look, this looks like the level of damage to our economies through the loss of licence revenue from tuna fishing, and here are things that we believe need to be done about that. Mm-hmm. And on the food security side? Yes, the other component is very much a domestic issue. Um, we all know that fish has been a, a cornerstone of food security for Pacific Island countries for a long, long time. And what's happening now in many countries is that the populations are growing quite rapidly. And so because most of the fish has traditionally come from coral reefs and because coral reefs are going to be degrading uh, through climate change, through ocean warming and the effects of ocean acidification, there's a gap emerging between how much fish people should have for good nutrition and how much is going to be available from coral reef habitats. And the region is blessed in the sense that uh, it has a very rich tuna resource. And although the tuna is progressively going to be moving further and further to the east, there's still going to be a lot of tuna left um, in national waters. And so this project is designed to make it easier for coastal communities to go and catch tuna and to fill this gap in fish supply for good nutrition. And coming to that part of it, um, obviously wanting... um at this stage and going forward for more ownership of, of the project from Pacific countries? Uh, why is that important and what would that look like? But having the ownership of the project is important because the countries will have to feel that they actually, it's something that belongs to them. Yes, they have to see that, they have to see the issues and, you know, see, take ownership. But to do that, they'll have to also contribute towards the ideas, building this whole concept up because... Whatever, whatever is been, whatever is in the concept note, or whatever has been proposed, may not be the same for every country. They have, they have a way of doing things, and if we consult with them through consultation, we'll have to build that relationship, and also align whatever their thoughts are with this project. Then we have this going on where they own this, have this ownership, and it will be easier for us to actually implement this project. New Zealand's government has announced the Pacific Housing Strategy and Action Plan 2030, or Whale Moinga. The strategy, implemented through the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, aims to improve housing outcomes for Pacifica in New Zealand. According to Statistics New Zealand in 2018, Pacifica home ownership rates were 21%, compared to 52% overall. Minister for Pacific Peoples, Alpito William Seal, spoke to Whinau Whanua about the strategy. Could you describe this new housing strategy? What does it entail? The strategy is about ensuring that we achieve um, economic prosperity and lift Pacific well-being so that our Pacific peoples are confident, thriving, resilient and prosperous Pacific peoples are not living. And the strategy, or Houses for Families, is a pragmatic and tailored approach to progressing the housing aspirations of our Pacific peoples our home ownership back in 2017 was the lowest ever, around 16%, and that's just not good for the future of our communities. Um, the second objective is about building affordable, quality, healthy, fit-for-purpose home for Pacific peoples. This means just increasing the supply of affordable, quality homes that meets the needs of big families, intergenerational families. And so that gives us an opportunity to partner with Pacific Church Housing Trust 
developers, iwi and Māori, to build those specifically designed homes that are robust but acknowledges that our families are multi-generational, our families also practice their culture, and we need to provide that and making sure that they're healthy homes. The third objective is about developing and growing the Pacific housing sector. And this just recognises that there are Pacific organisations out there who deliver housing and tailored support and ongoing services facilities right across the housing continuum. And the government has a role to play in supporting that and increasing the number of Pacific housing providers that help Pacific peoples work towards homeownership. And the fourth and final key objective is about influencing and strengthening the housing system to improve housing outcomes for Pacific peoples. And that is why this strategy is a partnership between um, the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development. Most people agree that New Zealand has a housing crisis. Could you describe the situation for Pacifica? Because we know from studies, one, for example, from 2020 said that close to 40% of Pacifica families lived in overcrowded conditions. What are the challenges that Pacifica have been facing in regards to this housing crisis? It's what you said. Um, For a, a period now, the last two or three decades, what we've seen is Pacific people's home ownership rates declining and more and more Pacific peoples are living in in in, um, in other people's rental properties, particularly in the social services. It did not help that when National was in power, they started selling off state houses, social housing. It did not help also that when National was in power, they did not focus on housing because they did not recognize there was a housing crisis. And what we saw when National was last in power, an increasing number of people who were in homeless situation and there was no solution for them. So what we're trying to do in this strategy was Minister Megan, Dr. Megan Woods is responsible for housing across all New Zealand. My focus is how do we provide a, a range of housing options to Pacific peoples because I want our communities to focus on home ownership. But for some Pacific Islanders, the journey to home ownership will be longer than for others or may not even be possible. And what we started off with in 2020 was the focus on financial literacy and empowering our communities with information that would be useful in them in setting financial goals to own a home. But it also empowered our communities in order to understand debt, good debt, bad debt, and understanding the rules and where they can get help when they fall in the debt trap. And so we've made a fantastic start so far, and the strategy just confirms this is the housing strategy for Pacific peoples. It is providing a range of options for Pacific peoples. Some, it's about making sure that they have a warm, dry home to enter into. It's about building more fit-for-purpose, specifically designed houses for big families, multi-generational families, and warm and dry homes. It's about ensuring that our Pacific communities have a pathway towards owning their own home. And so this is what we're doing, building more housing, providing more social housing, providing more options to buy homes. 
And I want to make sure that the Falemoaing strategy is one that provides um, that increased capacity and capability across the Pacific housing sector, but specifically giving our people the opportunity and choices but to empower them with the tools to buy them. That's Pacific Ways for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. For Vetaitele Lava, Noele Vayasu.